Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Joan Blades. Joan was the co-founder of MoveOn.org and MomsRising.org. Her current passion is to bring right and left together in conversation to find common ground so our country can move forward following this divisive election. The project is called Living Room Conversations. Welcome to the program, Joan. Thank you so much for having me. I remember you from MoveOn.org and Moms Rising, and you have a new passion, Living Room Conversations. Can you tell me what that is? Absolutely. It's a opportunity to let people talk to each other across differences, right, left, older, younger, you name it. Right now, we're looking a lot at the right-left issue. It's a very simple practice where two friends with different viewpoints each invite two friends to have a structured conversation. They've agreed to some ground rules, which are basically what you learned in kindergarten. Take turns, be respectful, be curious, own your part of the conversation. And then it, the structure is such that the first couple of rounds are about who you are. Why do you join the conversation and some of your deeper values so that by the time you get to the topic you've chosen, you have a sense that these people you're sitting with are people you share values with in some ways and that they're good people. Can you find those differences when you live in a city like Berkeley? Well, one of the reasons I started this was because I was born in Berkeley and I lived other places in my 20s, but I came back. It became clear to me at a certain point that I really needed to understand what conservatives were thinking, particularly when I was at Move On. Back in 2004, I was part of a group called Reuniting America, And I had the opportunity to sit down with people, grassroots leaders on the right, and really have a relationship and conversation and better understand where they were coming from. You know, my question was at that time, why aren't you concerned about climate change? And at that time, we were able to... Way back then. Yeah, 2004, 2005. And at that time, we were able to have a really thoughtful conversation about it. And honestly, the lines had not hardened in the way they have since that time. By 2008, 2009, I couldn't have those same conversations, which said to me that, you know, we need to have that relationship first so that we can actually have a thoughtful conversation. What do you think caused the hardening of the lines? You said 2008, 2009. Was it the crash? No, I wouldn't say it's the crash so much as different topics get taken as partisan indicators, and you have to be true to that line more and more. And I think we've become increasingly polarized over the last 10 years. A lot of people have forgotten. Move On started midway in the impeachment scandal with Monica Lewinsky and Clinton. And it was a common sense, let's get back to business, one sentence petition, censure the president, (laughs) and get back to pressing issues facing the nation. And you could love Clinton or hate Clinton and agree that the best thing for the country was to get back to business, because it was just increasing partisanship. So we had, you know, thousands of Republicans delivering their move-on petition, too, at that time. But unfortunately, two weeks after an election where we worked very hard to get all sorts of people out, we had the Congress impeach. It wasn't the most popular thing to do. And then, you know, we'd gotten hundreds of thousands of people active in politics for the first time in their lives, and it 
just didn't feel right to go home at that point because good citizenship is electing people that reflect your values. And that's actually how Move On ended up becoming more than a flash campaign because our original intent was just we'll help everyone communicate with and leadership. And Move On is still happening. Move On is still a very healthy organization with wonderful leadership, and but it's it's working on the progressive side in various sort of way. And Whereas I've, your living room conversations... You're inviting everyone to the conversation. Living room conversations are me and a whole set of partners from right to left agreeing that we need to have relationship, respectful relationship, have everybody's best ideas in Did the you room. reach out to these people? I know one is a Tea Party person. and Did you personally reach out and say, I want to do this with you? One of my friends who was a conservative said, you know, you should meet Mark Meckler, who's the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots. You're the co-founder of Move On. Wouldn't it be cool if you both had a living room conversation together? Is that how this started? No. Living room conversations started with working with a group called Changing the Game to do a pilot project and test out what a simple conversation that would be massively reproducible would look like. As a founder of Move On, I really value grassroots engagement. Because when you get down to it, citizens are smart, they're caring, and if you give them a way to participate, they'll do so in a really valuable way. And I think we lack the citizen voices that we really need. If and you look this at was this, a long time ago that you started this pilot. 2011. Yeah. And one of the people from Changing the Game, one of the conservative partners there, became my partner founding Amanda Catherine Roman, founding Living Room Conversations, because you really have to walk the walk doing this work. Tell me more about the goals of living room conversations? Well, the, the goal is to have good relationships with people with all sorts of belief systems so that we can actually work together collaboratively. And collaborative problem solving is just infinitely better than adversarial problem solving. You need to go out to the Congress and speak. Well, they haven't invited me yet. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. The issue of climate change is one where even if all the Republicans agreed it was a huge problem at this point, I would not trust the Congress to come up with a good plan because they do it through adversarial engagement. To do really good problem solving, you need to use everyone's best ideas. You need to be agile. So you try what you think is the best plan possible. And when you see things that are working, you go deeper there. And things that aren't working, you, you, know, you cut those pieces. And that kind of creativity and agility isn't possible when you're in an, an internal fight. And right now we're seeing an internal fight. Yes. And I just finished Arlie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land. And I couldn't help but think it, by the end of it, it seems like progressives are always reaching out, trying to figure out a way to communicate with those that have very different ideas. Do you think they feel the same way toward us? I, I don't see that same sort of reciprocity. It always seems like it's a progressive idea to say, we need to talk. Well, remember, this is an organization that's half conservative and half progressive, right? Living Room Conversations is not me. I'm one of many partners, and I'm here okay. in Berkeley. So, And honestly, I think on both sides, there's been a great deal of rigidity that has been built in. And in fact, people want to fix the Congress— and I want to, too, but I believe Congress will be fixed and presidential elections will be fixed when we create a citizen foundation that has an expectation of respectful engagement and collaborative problem solving. 
So you started this pilot project. You're not still in the pilot phase. Oh, wait a <laughs> Okay, so tell me what some of your accomplishments have been since 2010. Well, I think the most one of the noteworthy conversations, especially for this locality, is Mark Meckler and I did co-host a conversation in 2013 on crony capitalism, where he brought two of his friends and I had two of my friends. And we had this amazing conversation. And I invited one person from the press, Joe Garofoli of the San Francisco Chronicle. And the following week, that conversation ended up on the front page, top of fold, on the San Francisco Chronicle. And that conversation led us to realize that we were in complete agreement. And when I say we, we and our friends, that there are way too many people in prison. The war on drugs is not successful. And we have to start using evidence-based practices in the criminal justice system. That led to Mark and I speaking publicly, writing, you know, op-eds. I wrote with Grover Norquist and Matt Kebe. And I had the opportunity to initiate a convening in 2014 of leaders on the right and left, inside and outside D.C., because D.C. insiders are different from D.C. outsiders in many ways, on the topic. And it ended up being the seed for a group called the Coalition for Public Safety, which is working on criminal justice issues where we're fundamentally in agreement with major organizations on the left and right, AFL, CIO, and Grover Norquist group, you know, and is funded by left and right, MacArthur Foundation, Koch Brothers, Arnold Foundation, Ford. You know, this is meaningful. And if you recall, there was a time when someone in politics couldn't talk about reducing prison sentences, couldn't talk about all sorts of ways of improving criminal justice. That dynamic changed. Now, there's a whole a huge amount of work to be done to improve the criminal justice system. We've just created the opening where improvement can be made. And the more I Do you learned, feel like the recent election will hinder some of the progress you've made? It depends on how successful leaders on the right are in communicating with this administration that there's an opportunity to greatly improve our criminal justice system and our communities through having fairer, better evidence-based practices. It has concerned me deeply when I started hearing the old law and order language, but I hope that that was just something that was happening in the run-up to the election and that, in fact, because there is so much more understanding now of how dysfunctional our criminal justice system has been in certain ways, that improvement will continue. And you mentioned crony capitalism. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Where were the areas of agreement? Ah, there was agreement on left and right that if the banks are going to gamble with our money, they shouldn't be insured when they lose it and get to keep it when they make money. Yeah, that's not a, a kind of deal we think is good for us. Stupid regulations, nobody likes them. I think there's a segment of America that's just really annoyed with stupid regulation. Oh, yeah, especially in in Arlie's book that she goes into pretty great depth about both the state and the federal regulations. You know, bad regulation is we have we're burdened by this. So if we could make it all of us collectively easier to get rid of that, which is not good and improve that which needs improving, we're in such a stuck place. If we, when we're in good relationship with each other, a huge amount becomes possible. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, 
celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today I'm interviewing Joan Blades. Her new project is Living Room Conversations, designed to build relationships and foster collaborative problem solving locally and nationally. Did you get to climate change as an issue of agreement? Um, To, To me, that's such an important issue and one that affects everyone regardless. The climate change topic is a really deep one because it has many... I have numerous conservative partners, and they come from different perspectives. One of my partners is a techno-optimist. He thinks the market and, you know, man, you know, our traditional creativity is going to solve this problem. One of my partners, Jacob, in Utah is a Mormon and has not considered climate change a huge issue. But because we're in close, you know, we love each other. He's a wonderful human being. And he's come to understand that climate change is the progressive end time story. And he can relate to a group that has an end time story. And he's, <laughs> he's right. It is our progressive end time story. It is one of them, for sure. But it's also because, and I can say to him, Jacob, you know, even if there's only a 20% chance that we are destroying the future for our children and their children and the planet, that's unacceptable. I don't let my children play Russian roulette. And plus, it's not necessarily, it's, when you say story, that implies that it's sort of this, I don't know, a story. When in fact, no, the, the Bible it's really is really real. I the, mean, it's really affecting, you know. The Bible is the story that means the most to Jacob. That is not a diminishment that at all. It's a, it's a very respectful understanding of where I'm coming from, that it is my end time story. You know, that's the deep story that Arlie talks about, right? Yeah. And he, he cares more about climate change now because he cares about me. Do they not see the, the effects? Like, for instance, in Arlie's book, that people who are experiencing the effects of uh, whether it's chemicals in the aquifer or more high cancer rates, why can't they connect the dots, whether it's climate change I think or in Arlie's pollution? case, they do connect dots. I think they see environmental pollution. But I think climate change is big enough that if your world, and our world is the community we live in, sees it as nature's natural way of going through changes, it's very possible to see things that way. You know, if there's science behind what we're doing, we know that people make their decisions first with their emotions and then their reason justifies it. So being in relationship makes all the difference in the world to how you hear someone. And if you live in a community that believes climate change is not a primary threat and, you know, the deficit is, then all your instincts and they're pretty primal, are going to send you there. And in fact, if I send one of my conservative friends off to talk about climate and they talk about climate the way I talk about it, they are at risk of being shunned. And on a primal level, that is death. You're shunned, you're out of the pack, you die. And that's the way it, it feels. So it's, it's not... Let's talk about influence. this divide just a little bit more because to me, it's always been a socioeconomic problem. I feel like the, the coasts and major cities... People have jobs, and slowly but surely, 
these jobs and high-paying jobs have evaporated from these regions that have become red states. Why isn't anybody just coming out and saying it's a socioeconomic issue? You know, if you are feeling like you're less than your relatives on the coast because you can't afford to send your kid to a college that they can because your job isn't good enough. To me, it's just, it's kind of the 99% again, the 1% who have everything and, you know. I think some people are saying it, are telling the economic story. And I think it's many stories. You know, there, there are many threads to this. And the more I've been engaged with diverse people across the political spectrum, the more I've seen that there isn't a right There's a lot of different positions around the country and very different ways of looking at things that are not progressive. Okay. (laughs) You know, sometimes we use the term transpartisan because bipartisan doesn't begin to describe it. It's way too linear. But it's all over the map in terms of where people's beliefs are. And the reality is when you have a conversation with someone, you're not going to transform their beliefs in a single conversation. What you are hopefully going to do is create some relationship which opens them up to thinking about things differently. It's, it's about opening hearts, honestly. And once we care about each other, then many things become possible. How many of these living room conversations are going on right now around the country? Do you have certain regions? And- you know, that's a great question. And since it's an open source project that's very lightly funded, we know about hundreds that have happened, but I know they've happened in East Africa. And you know, I gave a talk in San Francisco a few years ago and came back the following year. I'm in the elevator with someone and said, oh, our church, they really, it made a big difference. It was really great. I gave them my card. Tell me more. Tell me more. Never got back to me. So the reality is when you create something that's just available to people. You, you don't have the data. Don't have the data. But you know, are... it used to be that churches kind of provided that living room conversation, at least when I was growing up in the Midwest. People would come together for one reason or another, not necessarily uh, churchy stuff, and mm-hmm. talk. And it seems like there was a lot more flexibility with people than there is today. Do you think some of the social fabric being gone now, like the churches and the organizations that are no longer, has had an effect on this? I think it's had a huge effect, and I also think we've homogenized. Um, what as do you in, mean by that, homogenized? I live in Berkeley. We have very little exposure to conservatives. And they, in, in turn, our, are homogenized. Yeah, because we're all more comfortable now, and it's become impolite to talk politics in many, many situations because politics have become so heated. And honestly, when I see people talk politics, very often they're just doing the talking points. And you know that cartoon with the dog listening to the master and the master saying things, the dog saying blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Until we have relationship, those talking points are like blah, blah. When's the last time you saw someone win an argument like that? You don't win arguments. No. You don't. And debates, you may say you win debates, but in terms of true persuasion, true persuasion happens when you care about each other and you really want to understand. And when that understanding happens, then you've got some room for creative engagement okay. and win win solutions are possible. 
Well, what are some of the topics that you're looking forward to this next year to take to some of these conversations? You've talked about the three that you mentioned earlier. Well, we certainly have the post-election conversation, but we have 50 conversations up. Uh, One of the things I'm very excited about is All Sides for Schools. And All Sides for Schools, my conservative partner, John, started All Sides. It's a news resource that gives you news from left, right, and center, side by side, same topic sometimes. That's, that's actually just a news service. And what happened is organically, it started being pulled into schools. And then we had a living room conversation here in Berkeley a couple of years ago. Uh, Serena Weatherspoon was a co-host. And it was a voter non-voter living room conversation because in 2014, in California, under 10% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted, under 10%. It's like, what's going on? So she had a conversation with peers. Then she wrote this wonderful blog about it that basically said, well, you know, I was surprised. We were actually in complete agreement. It's really questionable whether voting is worthwhile. And school taught us more about the great Gatsby than how to vote. So, you know, some fell on the... that's a great point. (laughs) Yeah. And they went to Berkeley High, right? Here you have, you know, just half of them said, eh, it's not even worth it. And half said, well, I guess I should. Even though. But it was really questionable. This is a conversation a couple of years ago. And she wrote about that. And John and I were talking to each other going, that's terrible. Because, you know, schools are the place where we're supposedly paying for them to have an educated electorate. 18 to 24-year-olds should be the most likely to vote, not the least likely to vote. What's going on? It should be something they look forward to doing. Yeah. And when he said all sides was getting pulled into schools and they were starting to work on a critical thinking curriculum, I said, you know, that's great. The other piece of that is we know that having relationship makes all the difference between whether people really listen to each other or not. And schools teach debate, but they don't teach collaboration necessarily and how to really be great listeners. So the power of relationship. So what we decided to do is create this head-heart piece for the all sides, and that's all sides for school. So it includes a relationships matter living room conversation. Now, there's also the not school version, but for the school. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you're kind of targeting a younger demographic. You We're know, targeting everybody. Right? <laughs> yeah. and you don't want to exclude that group. Faith communities, because the Episcopal Diocese of El Camino Real invited me to come for their spring convening. And from that, we now have a faith community living room conversations partner because she started using, now multiple folks started using living room conversations in their congregations, but she started using it deeply and did some beautiful blogs about it. And we realized that really... Every major faith tradition, love thy neighbor, is a key part of the tradition. And what a gift for faith communities to take this role on. And so some are. And we are hoping this year because this year and next year, because if anything is going to show us that we need to change our relationship with our neighbors, and I'm saying neighbor in the very broad sense, all those states where we're thinking we're really isolated from, We've got to break down those boundaries. In three and a half years, when we have a presidential election, I want to have both candidates be people that my conservative friends would accept and be 
okay that be with so much more interesting and they too? would have for me the same yeah and that's because because we're in relationship with each other we'd be demanding of media that they treat people running for office with more respect we've made it a miserable thing running for office a lot of the people i would like to run for office won't because it's it's not a place they want to be you know when we care about each other then we want us all to get to a place where we can, you know, be proud together of a president. I read a recent New Yorker online article about Silicon Valley's empathy vacuum. It was by Am Malik, and I think that he touched on a lot of the things that you're talking about. He says that Silicon Valley's biggest failing is not poor marketing of its products or follow through on the promises, but rather the distinct lack of empathy for those whose lives are disturbed by its technological wizardry. He encourages an empathy um, for this industry and says that Silicon Valley could even become a bigger villain in the popular imagination, much like the East Coast counterpart, Wall Street. I think this goes along with what you're saying, and it may be a little idealistic. Yeah, I think we need to get a little idealistic here. And the Really, we're talking so seriously. The reality of these conversations is, yes, you're a little nervous going into it, but it's actually a great experience because you meet these people that are lovely. And when you live in a bubble with people that all agree with you, what happens is it amplifies your anxieties. It amplifies the divide. It amplifies the divide. And all of a sudden you find that these people that you've thought were so other aren't. They're kind. They're intelligent. And they have some really different viewpoints that are challenging. But holding the tension of our differences, that's a practice we can do. I want to talk a little bit about your background. You had a background in technology originally. Is that correct? I was originally an attorney mediator. So mediation is my starting passion. Well, that makes sense. And technology just kind of happened. Okay, I was going to ask you how you went from that to a a very, I call it political career. (laughs) Well, actually, it went from that uh, to Wes, who is my husband. We played soccer together. He's technologically very adept, and he had a small company, and we were best known for flying toasters and a game show called You Don't Know Jack. So, but that was how we supported ourselves, which was really good. And I was the person that if I could read the manual, anyone could understand it. Because, you know, know, I did everything in the company, but nothing technology-wise other than if I could understand it, yeah, all right, this will work. And when did you start to move into, to move on? Oh, move on was this total fluke. Six months into the impeachment scandal, Wes and I are... You know, and I don't like polarization. I'm against it. And we're sitting in a restaurant on Solano Avenue hearing another crowd of people talking about, you know, how the impeachment's just going on and on. And we wrote our one-sentence petition. Congress must immediately censure the president and move on to pressing issues facing the nation. Sent it to under 100 of our friends and family. And within a week, we had 100,000 people sign that. In 98, that was unheard of. And that's when I started learning about politics and communicating with leadership. And it's been an education. And I see you have an event coming up at Berkeley's historic Hillside Club. Uh, You and Arlie Hochschild 
will be in conversation December 8th at 7.30 p.m. And that's here in Berkeley at 2286 Cedar Street. What are you going to be talking about? Harley Hochschild and I are going to be speaking about talking to strangers. <laughs> and, and she'll probably be talking about her new book, which was nominated for a National Book Award. Yes, and it's and a New York be talking, Times bestseller now, yes. Strangers in Their Own Land. And, and you'll be talking about living room conversations. Yes. We're having a conversation about our adventures with people that have very different views than us and how really wonderful it is having those conversations. It makes our lives richer. Yes, it does. Is there a website or how can people get a hold of you? Livingroomconversations.org. Everything you need to do a living room conversation and 50 topics already and we're putting up more all So the how time. to get started and Yeah, the whole concept is this is so simple and it's really about tapping your host and guest norms and re- being reminded and reminding people of, you know, how we're supposed to act together. It's powerful. And break bread together and people have a great time. Well, Joan, I want to have you on the show in a couple of years and we'll see how how this has gone. That would be really interesting. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. That was Joan Blades, founder of Living Room Conversations. And you've been listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. Tune in next Friday at noon.